Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, any of the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County, Maryland Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And insofar as we discuss legal matters today, it is not intended to provide legal advice to anyone. If you have a legal problem, it is important to marshal the facts and the evidence and go meet with a lawyer and discuss your particular situation individually and get the best legal advice possible. We have a wonderful opportunity today to learn some new stuff that we really haven't spent a great deal of time on the show previously. We have Sharon Goldsmith of the Maryland Pro Bono Resource Center. Did I get the title correct? Very close. It's the Pro Bono Resource Center of Maryland, but same idea. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And welcome to the show. And you manage that entity. Is that right? Yes. I'm the executive director. In fact, I was the founding director almost 32 years ago. Wow. You look too youthful. Well, thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. I think that I read that the Pro Bono Resource Center kind of derived from a project with the Maryland State Bar Association. Is that accurate? That's correct. So back in 1990, the Maryland State Bar Association set up a nonprofit, which became the Pro Bono Resource Center of Maryland, to help galvanize attorneys to provide volunteer legal services across the state. So the goal was really to engage as many attorneys as possible to give free legal services to people in need. And that was sort of the genesis for the Pro Bono Research Center. At the time, there was a legal needs study that found that less than 20% of those people of limited means in the state could afford an attorney. And, you know, that was not a very positive statistic. And so the court was considering mandating pro bono service by lawyers in the state. And the State Bar Association took the path to say, well, let's try to do this in a voluntary way and see how much progress we can make that way. So that's what launched PBRC, the Pro Bono Research Center. So how successful has it been? Well, from my standpoint, very successful. Um, We started, it was basically me and a part-time person. We're now up to over 22 staff members who are providing some of the direct services throughout the counties and the jurisdictions in which we work. But more importantly, engaging the private bar members in volunteer service to make sure that critical legal services are being provided to people who would not be able to access attorneys otherwise. And we have over the years trained thousands of attorneys and then deployed them to other nonprofit organizations that also provide free legal services in the community. And again, it's we're talking about statewide. So we've seen a huge uptick in pro bono service since we started. In fact, I think the program, the Maryland Legal Services Corporation, which funds most of the legal services nonprofits in the state, was seeing about 1,800 cases being placed with volunteer attorneys per year when we started. And within just a few years, that had risen to close to 8,000 cases. So we were really, really pleased with the results. And of course, like many things, it's volunteer. So every year we're starting anew, trying to get people to sort of re-up their commitment. But I think we can be quite proud of the plethora of pro bono opportunities there are. And just the widespread areas in which we provide free legal help to people across the state. Just for our audience, if you're not familiar with the term pro bono, in effect, we're talking about free legal services for people who don't have the means to otherwise afford a lawyer. Is that pretty much it? 
That's exactly it. And pro bono publico actually means for the good of the public. So we are doing this because as lawyers, we know there really is a challenge to accessing the courts and the legal services that are so important in all areas of our life. And this is all in the civil arena. We're not talking about criminal, just to be clear. It's all in the sure. civil arena we're talking about now. And people don't think about that. You frequently think about a lawyer as maybe helping you in a divorce or drafting a will, but there are so many other areas in which legal help, legal advocacy can literally change people's lives and turn around you know, dire situations for individuals and for communities. We're talking about economic stability. We're talking about public health, safety, preventing homelessness, just an array of benefits to the community when they recognize what lawyers can in fact do to help in areas that only lawyers you know, have the license and the knowledge and expertise to help with. I would imagine that the landlord-tenant realm, particularly in the COVID world, has been one where there's been an enormous need. Absolutely. In fact, we started the first Volunteer Lawyer of the Day program in Maryland, in Baltimore City, rent court uh, sure. several years ago. And I mean, the dockets were you know hundreds and hundreds a day of cases a day. You'd see dozens and dozens of people pile into the courthouse. And we were able to ask people if they wanted a lawyer for free on the spot. We could provide some brief legal advice, look at their case statistics, and then literally stand up in court and represent them. Things have changed a lot since the pandemic and with the court's closings, obviously, but we are seeing cases coming back now, and we're providing those services in Baltimore City and Baltimore County now. So, I mean, there is still some challenge, I would say, with trying to meet the need, because obviously, given where we are with the pandemic, the courts are still keeping the dockets not as full or, you know, as as busy as they were at one point. So they're limiting the number of cases and trying to social distance accordingly. So we could probably or would be seeing many, many more cases if that weren't the situation right now. But across the state, there are similar programs popping up and there are just thousands of people who are facing dire circumstances because they are receiving eviction notices and can't find affordable housing. So hypothetically, if I were one of those people who had received an eviction notice, how would I go about looking into the services your organization provides? So there is a hotline that we have that we staff with attorneys during the week so they could call that number. And what is and that number? Of course, <laughs> I will provide that number and I realize right. I really have it at my fingertips. No problem. Um, I will give that to you. And there's that. There's also in the courts, if people find that they are in court, there is a self-help center where they can go and they can provide some immediate legal advice and give people resources. And they can also call and chat with someone at the court to find out other resources that there are. So there are a number of ways. There's also for representation, and this applies in any civil case. If people need representation, do not think they can afford an attorney, they can call the Maryland Legal Aid, which provides free legal services as well. And that number is 1-800-999-8904. I would take that down for future reference. I think we had somebody on early on from Legal Aid on the show. And I regret to say there's been enough guests that it might have been 
you know, I just don't recall. So I often ask people the path that they took to their present position. And, and I guess I wonder, did you always think that you wanted to be a lawyer? Did you always think you wanted to engage in public service? What was the path that you took? So I love that question. <laughs> yes, it's, it's funny. When I was probably a, a young teen, I did actually see myself as becoming some type of public interest lawyer. I do have judges and lawyers in my family. So I would, I would love going to court and sort of observing. And I just really knew that there were so many people who needed advocates who probably could not hire attorneys and to be their advocates. But how, at a young age, I think I appreciated how important that was. So after, I mean, in college, I was became very involved in the public interest research group. So that opened my eyes to housing issues and to other consumer issues, environmental issues, and it really opened my world. And then I obviously, after law school, I really was looking to do something that I thought would help better the community. I did practice for a couple of years in private practice with a relatively large firm in Baltimore, and then had this opportunity to take on pro bono coordination. And I, I would do pro bono cases while I was at the law firm and think that this is great, but people are not really aware of how to get involved in pro bono work as lawyers. Typically at that time, there were certainly a, a number of programs that existed where you could volunteer and take a case and do some pro bono service. But I didn't feel like it was that easy to connect or to find out what those range of opportunities were. So I remember thinking there are a lot of good colleagues of mine who I know are good people and really would like to give back in this way, but they just don't know how to find the right opportunity. And as I'm thinking through this, I learned about this opportunity with the State Bar Association, setting up a program where you would put these opportunities in front of lawyers and create more opportunities and train and provide all sorts of support services so they could do that. And so it just seemed to be kind of the perfect, <laughs> perfect match. So I guess the stars were aligned in a way. And I was fortunate enough to be hired as the director. And as they say, the rest is history. I haven't looked back. You've been at it for a while. Yes, of course, my board members are kind enough to say I started when I was about 16, but... Well, that's exactly that's what I was speculating in my earlier comment. <laughs> so how do you do the outreach on this stuff to lawyers? I mean, lawyers are notoriously busy creatures. They are. And so we try a variety of ways in which we try to recruit lawyers. And one of the primary ways, actually, that we found very successful over the years is to offer training for lawyers in substantive areas of the law. So as you might imagine, many lawyers practice in very discrete areas, and they may not know housing law, consumer law. They don't do veterans benefits typically. You know, there are all these areas where clients have needs, but they don't necessarily align with an attorney's practice area. So we provide an amazing array of really high quality training programs. We used to do them all live. Now, most of them are, well, everything is taped. If we do a live one, we always tape it, but everything is available online to make it really easy and accessible for attorneys. And so they, they are attracted to that because that gives them that comfort level. And obviously we wanna provide high quality services to clients, no matter how much they can pay, no matter who they are and from where they come. So it's really important to us and to the attorneys who volunteer with us that we provide that. We also provide mentoring. So we recruit by publicizing all these training programs, publicizing the opportunities 
we have the opportunities listed on our website, not just for PBRC, but for all the partner agencies with whom we work. We ask them to send us their pro bono opportunities. And so people can go on and say, oh, I'm in Frederick County. I want to do a case in this area of law. Let's see if there's something available and they can go and pick it up. We also work very closely with the State Bar Association to publicize opportunities. You know, we just try with the local bar associations to publicize opportunities, pub other publications, social media. So working with the young lawyers, I mean, any, any way that we can do it to promote what opportunities are out there. So you're talking about these training programs. Could you tell me a little bit about which specific areas of the law they concern? It's um, a wide variety, and okay. any attorneys who are interested can go to our website, which is probonomd.org, to find them. But as an example, since we do a lot in the landlord-tenant area, as you mentioned, we have a variety of trainings on housing and landlord-tenant law. We have trainings related to consumer practices, so fraud, bankruptcy, we do family law, veterans benefits, special education, so a range of disability law opportunities as well, uh, domestic violence. That's a, quite an array. Quite an array. I mean, it can go on and on. Criminal record expungements. There are just many, many opportunities. We, we really do believe now that as a community, since there are so many good programs out there and so many opportunities that there's really no excuse for any attorney not to be able to find some training, mentoring, and a way to give back in a way that only lawyers can. And that's what I love to emphasize with attorneys and to the public. The, the value that a lawyer can bring is so important and is so unique because for better or for worse, we have the license to practice we have the training, the skills, and you need that when you're, you know, advocating in a court situation or even drafting a will or trying to provide protections, you know, to immigrants who are facing deportation. I mean, no matter what it is, there are special privileges, licenses that attorneys have that unfortunately others don't. And so it is our responsibility, I wholeheartedly believe, to make that available to people who otherwise could not access the justice system. I would imagine that there are multilingual issues as well. Sure. And so in our immigration work that we do, for instance, we primarily see people who are coming from Central America. So Spanish capacity or, or capability is certainly very important. And so we have bilingual staff and we we also have ways that we can use something called language line in any of our projects where you can get on the phone and they will translate for you in real time. Many of the programs have bilingual staff where we're always trying to look for other opportunities to use volunteer interpreters when we can. Many of the programs have to pay interpreters, but we do. And the courts, of course, will provide interpreters as needed as well. I think there's sometimes a perception in the public because of Gideon versus Wainwright and the idea that you have right to criminal defense counsel, that there is a similar such right that exists in the civil law. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. That is also an excellent point, And I'm glad you raised that, Bob, because that is not the case, as you know, as a lawyer, that is not the case in most of the civil arena. So even though we know how critical it is to have an attorney and a right to counsel, that is not something that we have established in the country yet, but we are working on it. There is a very exciting movement and momentum around right to counsel in civil cases. And actually in Maryland, we've made some real strides in establishing that right through 
state and local government agencies and legislation. So we are piloting or hoping to pilot in the eviction prevention area, which is, as you know, such a problem right now, and really experimenting with what would it look like to have a right to counsel in a landlord-tenant case. When we were looking at our statistics earlier, it became obvious that in rent court, the likelihood of a life disruption drops from 93% to 8% when a tenant is represented. And most of the time, I probably 98, 99% of the time, defendants come to court and they're not represented. It makes all the difference. It just really does. You know, I, one of the things, and I go to district court quite infrequently, or the state district court, I should say, it used to be that they would have on tap a mediator in the courtroom. So you might go and there might be, you know, 30 personal injury cases all assigned and it would be infeasible to dispatch them all in a morning and they would have a mediator there to try and knock things out. And I wonder if there needs to be something like that kind of hanging around landlord tenant court across the state. So I know that there are many different opportunities where we've been trying to find alternative ways to help. And we have in, I know in the city, we've had a program where we've worked with very closely navigators and it's not exactly the same, but they do help facilitate uh, movement of the, of the clients and the staff. And there are, there are some opportunities for mediation. Certainly in other areas, I've seen that work very successfully. So we look at the whole spectrum. One of the reasons we set up the hotline for consumer and housing cases was because during the pandemic, when the courts were closed, we were not able to be there, stand up in court, day of court to represent clients. So we never really had a problem finding clients. They, there were many, many people when, who show up in court and the thousands, of course, who don't, who also need help. But we were always able to identify clients when we were in court. And then we also have a lot of community legal clinics where we literally go into senior centers and libraries and you know, work with churches and others to host free legal clinics for people. So going where the clients are and where they can most get the service, meeting them where they are. When COVID hit and so many of those closed down, it was hard actually to be able to provide that access to the clients. They wouldn't know, you know, where to go. So I think just making sure that access is really important. I'm sorry. I think I... <laughs> oh, no, that's perfectly okay. I, you, know, you have a fairly daunting task especially with COVID being around, you know? I'm sure it was difficult before, but this has to have created unforeseen complications in innumerable ways. Yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned, so many of our programs work in the courthouses or have community clinics or, you know, placing cases with attorneys and we're out doing that. And with COVID, we all had to pivot very quickly. So we were able to provide a lot of the services remotely or by phone. Again, there's a technological divide, as you might imagine, with many of our clients. They may not have access to Zoom or even internet, and sometimes phone is even a problem. So we would do the best we can using whatever technology or platforms we could to really make it accessible for the clients. So it was WhatsApp with a lot of our immigration clients. It was the phone with a lot of our seniors trying to help them draft wills and pass their, their homes on to you know, their heirs. It, so depending on the clients, we had to really just adjust. And I'm incredibly proud of not only my staff, but the legal services community as a whole their, and their ability to really innovate and find new ways to reach clients and provide the services. So we now have 
probably more opportunities than we did before for lawyers to get involved because we realize we can do a lot of this remotely. We can connect somebody in, in a rural part of Maryland with an attorney in an urban area far away, and they can provide services that are really critical, which maybe we wouldn't have done before. I was going to ask you if there are any characteristics that define the typical lawyer who gives time to this purpose. I wonder if you could speak to that, please. Sure. So as you know, lawyers every year have to report whether they do pro bono work in the state and how many hours they provided, if they provided hours. So we look at those reports very carefully every year. And the profile of the pro bono attorney seems to be generally somebody who's been more experienced in practice, has been in practice for a while. Frequently, it's the people who live in more rural areas. So Western Maryland and the Eastern Shore tend to have the highest participation rate. I never would have guessed that, honestly. That's great. And I mean, there are a number of reasons for that. Part of it, I think, is, you know, it's a percentage participation. So there are fewer lawyers in those rural areas. So clearly a a few more lawyers participate, then the percentage rate goes up. So there are some of that just, you know, understanding the statistics, but it does make sense in many ways that people in smaller communities have always sort of known the people in their community and have been asked to step in and provide free legal help as lawyers because you know who your lawyer is. I had a board member who would frequently say social services agencies, she would go to the grocery store, at church, um, you know, people in, in the criminal justice, they all would call her because they knew she was a lawyer and asked for legal help and, and she was happy to, to oblige. So that's one thing. And it, it also makes us think really carefully. The other observation we've made is that it's mostly solo and small firm practitioners who do most of the pro bono work. Tisk, so tisk. It is. So a lot of people think, oh, there are all these lawyers in large firms. Well, the truth is that most lawyers are on their own or in very small firms in Maryland. And so many of them tend to practice also in areas in which our clients need the help. So it might be whether it's family law or will, drafting wills, doing elder care. You know, those are the kinds of things that most of our clients need. And that's where a lot of these solo and smaller practitioners have areas you know, of expertise. So I think it's a combination, but it has been interesting because over the years, we haven't seen that demographic change that much in terms of the types of lawyers doing pro bono. It was very important to us to try to engage the younger lawyers more because they're our future. They will be the pro bono leaners of the future. They will determine whether people have access to these vital legal services in the future. And so we are doing everything we can to engage them more. I had the experience, I was a partner in a large firm in Washington, DC, and I left there, and I'm gonna age myself in 1996. And I was a great believer in doing pro bono work and recognized the necessity. And so I started working through the Prince George's County Law Foundation. And the first year I got seven bankruptcies, which almost drove me crazy. And then gradually things sort of, I got a more diverse array of pro bono cases, but I also started getting lots of calls from people who would call the Law Foundation and maybe didn't qualify quite for free legal services, but heard that I was a soft touch a little bit. And so I did represent lots of people who say, you know, they kind of sent me in your direction. And and I mean, I liked that and I didn't mind that my reputation was at least in Prince George's County, that I was willing to try and do things to help people of lesser means. But it's also easy to have 
an onslaught of such cases and make it difficult to dispatch them and also do your regular work. That is so true. And Bob, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because we have such a wonderful array of programs and what they're able to do as an organized pro bono program is screen people, make sure they have merit to their case, make sure they qualify income wise. So we do screen everyone to make sure that they cannot afford an attorney. We're trying to help the, you know, those who are really truly in need. And then it just helps the system. There's malpractice insurance. There's all sorts of training and mentoring. It helps the attorneys very much. It helps the clients to make sure they're getting connected and that, you know, nothing falls through the cracks. So that's, that's really very important. And, and I really support that. I'm so glad that you volunteered as well. That doesn't surprise me to, that you also wanted to give back. I did want to, before we ended, I did want to make sure that I was able to give you the phone number. Absolutely. Um, for, phone numbers, websites, and all that stuff. Absolutely. So for tenants and consumers, they can call 443-703-3053. That's 443-703-3053. And... If you are an attorney and you are inspired, hopefully you are. We have lots of short-term opportunities, brief clinic advices, all sorts of things for people to do. I encourage you to go to probonomd.org and look at all the array of opportunities for you. So let's kind of close things out that a frequent refrain I hear from lawyers is, I'm already doing tons of pro bono work day to day in my practice, so I don't really need to do this. And I, I wonder if you could kind of speak about the myths of pro bono work and what's necessary and that sort of thing. So what we don't know is if people are saying that clients don't pay them and then they say, well, that was pro bono because I didn't right. get reimbursed. That's not what we consider pro bono. Uh, the definition really Why? is intentionally providing free legal help or substantially reduced the legal help to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. Or also the definition for pro bono in Maryland includes civil rights and helping nonprofits who serve the poor, those of limited means. So that's really what we mean by pro bono. And just so the audience knows, lawyers have a professional responsibility to provide pro bono service. And the aspirational standard, as we call it, is 50 hours a year. That's very high. That's a lot of time. And probably about 17% of the bar actually does that. And about 45% of those lawyers in Maryland who practice full-time in the state actually provide some type of pro bono service. So we support it, we encourage it, but pro bono really is meaning to do that. And it's different from charity work because it's part of our professional responsibility. I think a lot of people look at it as public service, which absolutely it is. But again, because we are uniquely positioned to provide this access, it's so important that people use their legal skills to provide free legal help and good service, public service. Excellent. Well, I regret to say that we've run out of time for today's show, but I would very much like to thank you, Sharon, for appearing today. And you will probably inspire my law partner and myself to do more pro bono work in 2022. So at least on a micro scale, you have achieved an objective. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity, Bob, and thank Chris as well. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.